0: Give Me Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically.
1: Because I kept, because I kept hearing like your voice, and I feel like you say that's right a lot. So I kept.
2: No, yeah, you're not wrong, (laughs) but I don't say it every, like every single new paragraph. (laughs) So yes, right, 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 right.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Give Me Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for CalMatters.
2: And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times.
1: And today, Thursday, January 27th, 2022, we are talking about the state's response to homelessness. More specifically, what happens when a person actually gets off the streets and into housing and the frontline workers who are making that happen.
2: So there's a lot of new money being pumped into this system and we're counting on it to resolve one of the most intractable problems in the state, but there's so much as we're learning that needs to happen beyond money to meaningfully make progress on homelessness, And Manuela, you and your colleagues at CalMatters have recently taken a look at the plight of homeless service workers who make very little money for very high stress jobs and how essential they are to ensuring homeless residents get connected and stay with services that are being offered.
1: Yeah, Liam, I actually just got back from Los Angeles reporting a story on on these frontline essential workers and the shortage that providers are facing right now.
2: So for this episode, we have, as always, the perfect guest, or in this case, we have guests.
1: My coworker and good friend, Jackie Botts, who covers economic inequality and recently wrote a riveting story on Fernando Maya, a formerly homeless vet. She covered his journey over the last two years to find permanent housing in Los Angeles. Jackie's story focuses on Fernando's interactions with service workers and the housing system at large we'll be talking with both Jackie and Fernando about the story and Fernando's experience later on in the episode. But before we dive into everything, let's get into the most famous segment of California housing podcastery. It is
2: the avocado of the fortnight.
1: Our look at the most extravagant, zany, outlandish story in all of California housing. Liam, where is this fortnight's avocado taking us?
2: Well, Manuela, this fortnight's avocado is taking us to our future stomping grounds. Mars? No, even better, even better. Manuela, it's the metaverse.
1: Okay, that's much less exciting. I've been avoiding finding out what that is. Just like I've been avoiding this other thing, Wordle, that people keep tweeting about. It's all just nonsense to me.
2: Well, you better get used to it because the metaverse no. is, this, is this fictional place where maybe our entire futures will occur. So apparently there's a metaverse called Substrata where you can log on and see a whole world like place. You can actually buy land and I'm you can see the my air quotes in this metaverse for NFTs. The blockchain technology that I don't understand but very much love to make fun of.
1: Is land cheaper over there than in California? because in that case, I could get into it.
2: Yeah, so you knew NFTs were going to come into this too. Of course, this is the way we're going. So I don't know. I mean, land may be cheaper for the moment, but who knows in the future because once you get that land in Substrata, apparently you can do with it what you want. Something Twitter user at credit 88888, so that's five-eighths, credit five-eighths notice last month. Credit... Please don't tweeted- repeat it. <laughs> okay, <yeah. laughs> Quote, strikes me that you prob need active governance slash community board in metaverse, i.e. having a nice house and someone puts a giant me bit next to it.
1: Wow, okay. We're getting into metaverse zoning here?
2: Yes, a true innovation for our times that we absolutely deserve.
1: There's a lot of these terms that I don't understand, but can you break down what a MeeBit is at least?
2: You know, I'm really glad you asked that question, Manuela. You're welcome. And as an excellent reporter, I can tell you I have the answer. So I went, as you would, to Uh, (laughs) (laughs) MeeBits.com. My homepage. (laughs) And I'll just read you the description. Quote, The Meebits are 20,000 unique 3D voxel characters created by a custom generative algorithm then registered on the Ethereum blockchain.
1: That tells me nothing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Not a good enough description? Uh, You don't know voxel characters? Okay, well, basically, the Meebits look like pixelated Lego people, but in the metaverse. So again here, I don't know if I would want to live in my quiet, calm metaverse substrata home and look out the window and see a giant me bit next to me, would you?
1: No, I really don't think I would. But I do look forward to rallying around this cause with my future virtual homeowners association.
2: They're going to exist in the metaverse too, no question about it. Oh, yeah. So with that out of the way and perhaps pushed off to the future, let's dive back into the present and the meat of our episode here. So as you mentioned at the top, you just wrote a story that published about the worker shortage in the homeless services field. First, can you tell us a little bit about who these workers are and why they're so important to if the state's ever going to end or make meaningful progress on homelessness?
1: So California's plan to end homelessness essentially rides on the back of a very high stress, high turnover workforce. These workers are helping a person secure an ID to access basic benefits. They're staying up to date on what shelters have openings and whether the shelter fits a person's needs to be able to offer those living on the streets a chance to come inside. They're staffing those shelters, some of which have become COVID hotspots, and they're trying to convince landlords to take their clients into housing and in many cases, helping them actually stay there.
2: So really a kind of a jack-of-all-trades person here.
1: Exactly. Of course, you also need nurses, mental health professionals, and substance use specialists to provide those kind of services as well. But if a person, say, has a blood clot in their leg, they're going to go to the first person that they see, and that's these frontline workers. Denise Velasquez, an outreach worker that I spoke with, had to stand guard over a man's shopping cart full of blankets and recyclables on Skid Row for hours because that's what he needed in order to agree to go to the hospital. And they also have to witness some pretty horrific stuff, including overdoses.
2: So it sounds like these workers are doing a lot of things on the fly. They can face lots of trauma and have the very difficult job of building relationships and trust with people, even when things can go wrong and it's not really their fault.
1: And it's pretty common for things to go wrong. And it's these workers who take the blame. Denise recounted a time when she was tasked with bringing 10 of the campers staying at the huge homeless encampment in Echo Park in Los Angeles last year into hotel rooms. They were overjoyed to go inside, but orders changed overnight And as it turns out, her organization didn't have enough rooms. They only had three. So guess who had to break the news and endure the spitting and yelling and threats of aggression that followed? That experience set off her health issues, anxiety, and depression, and she eventually changed jobs, even though she stayed in the same field.
2: Again, sounds like a whole lot of work and a whole lot of, a lot of times, aggravation for what these folks are making. You wrote that some of the providers... We're paying starting wages of $16 and $18 an hour for these folks. And these folks, of course, have to live in LA.
1: Yeah, folks starting near minimum wage. And because employers value lived experience so much, they try to hire people who are just exiting homelessness themselves, which means that these low wages can be pretty re-traumatizing for some and not really help them move out of that situation to begin with. As one advocate put it, they're paying poverty wages to tell homeless people there's hope.
2: So, why are the salaries so low?
1: The contracts that these mostly private, nonprofit organizations sign with local governments, which get money from different state and federal pots to deal with homelessness. These contracts usually come with a cap on personnel costs and high demands for output, which leaves these organizations choosing between serving as many clients as possible or paying w- good wages, which Just burns out workers even further. The money also comes in these short bursts, which means that a lot of these positions aren't even permanent.
2: In the story, you're pointing out that in this field, there's actually been a bit of a hiring spree. Organizations like PATH in LA are out to hire for about a third, wow, of their total workforce. They hired seven recruiters even to fill 340 positions. And it's taking them four months, though, to fill any given spot. How equipped Are these groups and these organizations able to handle all this new money that's coming in from last year's kind of landmark $12 billion that were appropriated to address homelessness issues?
1: Folks are seriously concerned about being able to recruit for the thousands of new jobs the state says is coming in, let alone retain that current workforce. As a result, there is $1.7 billion in the governor's proposed budget, which, as you know, still has to be negotiated with the legislature. To build up the entire health and human services workforce. But advocates are asking for, on top of that, a specific appropriation for the $2 billion that's set to go out to local governments to actually improve the wages of the lowest earners. This is the money that local governments use to contract such nonprofits.
2: And we've talked about the experiences of the workers, but it also, all this kind of consternation and low pay and turnover really does have a profound impact on the clients, the folks who are homeless as well. You know, as you say, a recent study found that in the last decade, more than a fifth of the 16,000 people in LA placed in permanent supportive housing fell back into homelessness and high case manager turnover, which one of several factors that contributed to that sort of depressing finding.
1: And it makes sense, right? Imagine being homeless, trusting a person with your story and all the demons that are accompanying it, making a long-term plan with someone, finally trusting them to do that once you're in permanent housing to get your life back on track. And then three, six months later, they disappear and someone else comes in. Some of the permanent housing residents that researchers spoke with for that specific study, we're already on their sixth or seventh caseworker, and that's just one of the myriad issues that Fernando Maya, the previously homeless vet, my colleague Jackie, profiled over the course of two years, faced in his long journey into housing. And I'm really excited that we're talking about his story because it represents a key component of the debate on homelessness that we often miss because securing housing is seen as a statistical success. The end goal means you're out of the trenches and it really is rare when there's only one person that gets housed for every seven on the wait list. But even in Fernando's case that's when some of the biggest challenges he faced really began.
2: So to give some context on Fernando, he's a 56-year-old veteran who was born in LA to Ecuadorian immigrants. He enlisted in the Navy when he was 18 and sailed overseas twice, was there when he was in the Navy when he first tried crack cocaine and was eventually discharged for failed drug tests in the mid-80s. When he returned to Los Angeles, Fernando went into drug recovery program and shortly thereafter dropped out, then spent several stints cycling in and out of jail and homelessness and eventually got hooked on meth. Now, at the start of the pandemic, uh, Fernando entered Project Roomkey, which is the state's effort to take the most vulnerable off the streets and into hotels and motels. And five months later, he got into permanent supportive housing, which is the gold standard for the chronically homeless residents, pairing them with ongoing rental assistance with supportive services such as case management, substance use programs, and mental health treatment.
1: But once he's in, these vagaries of life just keep hitting. Only 11 days into life in his new apartment, he's hit by a car doing one of his favorite things, biking. He suffers a traumatic head injury and post-hospitalization, his crystal meth habit kicks in hard and his will to get a job or even walk to his mom's house kind of disintegrates his studio begins to feel cramped an encampment outside his building triggers intense paranoia and he even started thinking about returning to the streets the story reveals that what was supposed to be a comprehensive system of wraparound services offering mental health support, drug treatment, job placement, was really threadbare at best. And he can't get a job because he can't pass a urine test. Being home alone becomes kind of unbearable.
2: And so what I thought was so powerful about this story and educational is that it really highlighted all the contingent factors that make it difficult for people to find housing and then stay housed. As we've mentioned, we've talked a lot about the role of sewage workers, yes, but there's also this ability to sort of feel safe and secure and in charge of one's surroundings. As you just mentioned, Fernando got around all the time on his bicycle, and the story talks about the freedom it gave him, and then this hit-and-run accident occurred, you know, leaving him with serious injuries, and of course, as you said, setting him back, ups and downs on his road to potential employment. To me, you could really feel from the story Fernando's unique circumstances, but also how there are so many others in similar situations where many contingent things can occur that make it easier or harder to get a place to live.
1: I think that there's also just something very relatable about the whole story. You can be on a certain track and then something happens that just completely knocks you out of it. There's also that trust that we all know is so important to be able to face some of our demons and how difficult that becomes when the system is so difficult. So I'm really excited that we get to talk with Fernando now and Jackie as well.
2: We are here with Fernando Maya, a formerly homeless resident living in Los Angeles, and Jackie Botts, a reporter at Cal Matters, who's recently written about Fernando's experiences with finding housing. Fernando and Jackie, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much for having us.
2: Fernando, I want to start with you for this question. So two years ago, you were living in a tent under an overpass, and now for the past year and a half, you've been housed. How has being housed for that time changed you?
0: Brings up more peace. You know, because outdoors you have the elements, you have ongoing traffic and all that. While I was in an eyesore, so to speak, people did notice. But I tried to make sure that what you noticed was that the area that I was in wasn't all tossed up and full of trash and everything. I I tried to maintain cleanliness, you know, because it was in a very public spot. I mean, I had federal detainment center behind me. I had the ongoing traffic of the 101 going next to me on my left right in front of me. And I had Union Station. Every, it was right in the middle of everything. You had federal, state, and county officials in that area. So you had to be a little bit more, at least acknowledge the fact that they're there. They notice us, but we don't have to worry about them.
2: And now that you've been you know, housed for the last 18 months, last year and a half, how are things different for you? How have you changed?
0: Well, I got a door. I got a door with a key. I got. <laughs> I have seven days a week of cop shows. <laughs> I'm stuck on one channel for the most part, and I can't go. Of I don't go anywhere. I, I, I'm in. The, I'm inside a lot, wandering around the streets, doing whatever whatever I was doing. That is definitely stopped because outdoors, I was never in the tent except when I had to go to sleep. And in here, I'm inside all the time. I'm in the apartment always. You know, it's it's comfortable here. I got my bed. I have my television, my food. I have electricity. You know, I don't have to worry about trying to find an outlet to charge my phones or charge my chargers, everything's good most of the time. When you look at it like that, the homeless, you have to go out and get yours because it's not gonna to come to you most of the time. Here I go out once a week, twice a week, grab as much as I can and then bring it back. When I go shopping for food, you know, I, I keep my refrigerator pretty much with all the stuff that I wanna eat and then if, you a know, few things that are good for you as well.
2: You were saying right at the top, you said you have a door. What does this feeling of having a door like mean for you?
0: It means that you have to watch out when you pull the keychain away from the door that you don't bust the key inside the door like I did last Friday. aside
2: <laughs> you know, from some of this practical stuff, I guess my question was more about is there a sense of safety? Is there a sense of security? Is there a sense of relief? Is it easier, you know, to go behind a door or, or have a bed and it's having it be sort of stable? Like, how does that feel?
0: I think it is. It's rational thinking, that's for sure. When we're outdoors, that is not a rational concept. Especially if you leave a house where you're not homeless, and you go to the streets for that, which is what I did, because I didn't have to be homeless. I had my problems, but it's like I didn't have to be on the street, and I chose to be out there, and now I choose to be inside. This is always a positive for me every day, because it is security. I don't have to worry about that I don't have the the walls to secure me from the elements, that I don't have trash just blowing by me inside my room. The security of the building is a... State-of-the-art building, very modern. You got the AC, you got the electricity, you have everything we need. We have burning water. So it's all about independent living, you know, living by yourself and making it. Whatever you learned in the past, whatever I was raised living as, it was back to being normal again, back indoors.
1: Where is the apartment?
0: The apartment is on Madison. On the north, the 101 freeway. On the south is Beverly Boulevard. On the west is Vermont. And on the east, is Virgil. I was raised about seven blocks away from here. Born and raised uh, up the street. So yeah, it's all good.
1: So I have a question for Jackie. Tell us a little bit about how the two of you met and why you chose to tell Fernando's story.
3: I was reporting on Access to CalFresh, California's food stamp program. And another reporter on the California Divide, which Manuela, you were on before, with La Opinion, said, oh, yeah, I can hook you up with someone who is unhoused and who uses CalFresh. And I don't really know how Jorge, like, got a hold of you, but somehow he gave me your number. And I gave you a call, and it became clear that CalFresh was working great for you. No problems. I was not going to be writing about your story. You thought maybe you you would connect me to someone who was living right next to you. Cute, right? That didn't end up happening. But at the time, I remember that you were, like, really gung-ho about the news you followed the news you knew what was going on a lot and you were excited to listen to talk to a journalist and I remember you saying like I can be your eyes and your ears on the street (laughs) and we (laughs) we kept in touch we called you sent me text messages and photos when there was a big like sanitation sweep of where you were living I think several times yeah and we just kind of kept in touch. And I had this sense because of the way that you told your story and you were in this place where you were applying at that point for a housing voucher through Veteran Affairs. It just seemed like you had a story worth telling. And so we kept in touch and I would just like check in and ask you little questions.
0: Did I drift off on the conversations then?
3: A little bit, yeah. You were <laughs> prone to, to going down rabbit holes and then I would pull you back. And you have, as I know, now know, you have a lot of stories to tell. <laughs> I only told a tiny fraction of
0: your story. A lot of people that I've met, you know, a lot of 58 years. There's a lot of there's a lot of stories there.
1: And you do have been talking for two years. Why now do you think it was so important to sort of tell Fernando's story, especially given sort of the stage that he's at within it or just what felt right about now?
3: We were planning on telling the story a year ago when you first got into this permanent supportive housing unit. So that was October 28th that you got in. And I actually, looking back at my interviews with you, I have, we did a Zoom call from your Project Room Key Hotel on October 26th. And then we did another Zoom call when you were there in that apartment that you're in right now on November 4th. And so the plan was to write a story about what it was like to come inside and it was going to end there. It was going to be real short. And obviously I ended up writing a very different kind of story a year later. And part of the reason that it took so long was just like the natural news cycle problem of like never really having time to dig my teeth into a story. But by the time we got to this fall and I finally had kind of gotten the time to be able to work on this story about Fernando that was more in depth, it also became clear that like just getting inside didn't solve all your problems, Fernando. And in fact, you confronted a lot of things in the last year that were both super personal, right? Like your bike accident and also things that are very systemic, like what Manuela just wrote about, which is staffing shortages among homelessness services. So by the time we got to the year anniversary that Fernando was in this permanent supportive housing unit, it was a very different story. And I think a much more like urgent story because it coincides with Governor Gavin Newsom having all of this money lined up to rapidly expand the number of permanent supportive housing units, like the one that Fernando got into. And people need to be thinking, you know, the people who are the lawmakers and Agency heads who are planning this big scale up also need to be thinking about the very kind of granular stories of the people going into these units like Fernando.
2: And I think, Fernando, what we want to ask you a little bit about these issues, too. What has your experience been like with the various caseworkers you've had? Like how connected and how significant you know have they been for you and your experiences?
0: I can tell you like this, that the staffing shortage, you can definitely see in the sense that there's only one agency really that works the way People's Concerned did, that comes out to the community, deals with the people in the moment at the area.
3: Yeah, the People Concern is a nonprofit homelessness services agency, and Jorge Soria was a case manager with the People Concern who helped Fernando apply and get into this unit. And then once Fernando got in, Fernando was taken off of his caseload.
0: A lot of the agencies, the way they work is, is you got to come in and ask for the service or they'll come out to you, they'll meet with you for a minute, but you eventually you have to always come in. And then with us, they always came to us. So it made it a lot easier. Some of us have uh, anxiety issues. You know, when you have to go and check in, maybe amongst all the people that you have to see, it's overwhelming. So it's a lot harder. And if you start seeing that nothing is really getting done and you're sitting in a room for hours, it gets frustrating and then people stop coming back. That's how you miss meetings. That's how you miss appointments. Or you just simply, like Fernando, you can write it down. You can call him. You can invite him. But if you don't come get him, he might not make it. There's a lot of us out there that are like that. There isn't enough staffing. Because there's a lot of homeless out there. There's a lot of homeless out there. You can drive down any street and you see us and we're everywhere.
3: You were, like, really connected with Jorge, with George.
0: It just so happens at that particular time, I would have been looking for Katrina. Katrina was my original worker. Katrina Lopez was the one that originally started my plan. And then she was moved deeper in South Central. And George was a new uh, worker coming in. I'll call him my lucky charm because it was like, from the moment he got on, I got my housing interview literally the next day. I had been waiting for weeks for any type of updates. And he comes in the next day, he gets the appointment. A couple of weeks after that, I have my first VA appointment. That took four to six months. but With George, it took only a matter of weeks. So they expedite a lot of stuff with them. But there's also bad people that you hear out here that have bad experiences with them. So, I mean, a lot of it's word of mouth travel out here too. If we hear that there's bad things with a particular set of people, then whenever they come around, they don't want no part of it. On the other hand, I just, it doesn't matter because if they were there helping somebody, then why can't they help me? That's the way it developed. Katrina picked me up on her caseload right away. She came back with my problems. The problems to my whole case were that my CES file points were incomplete. That's how they determine your eligibility for housing.
3: So that's like the coordinated entry system. The original evaluation that had been done of Fernando was many points too low. And so he didn't have a high acuity score, meaning that he wasn't prioritized for a permanent supportive housing unit. He met Katrina and she redid it and she bumped him up.
0: Put it this way if your points don't meet a certain level, the computer never even it knows of your existence. The computer system that puts out the line of people, according you know, for housing in the order that they're prioritized in, if your name and number doesn't meet a certain criteria, the computer never even knows that you're even homeless on the street. And with me, it, it happened like that for over ten years. My score had been incompletely calculated, and they had no idea that I was in the system waiting. But Within the vets, within the, because I'm a veteran, within the VAS program, I was on file as an applicant, but there was no connection to me. They hadn't had any contact with me, so they didn't know where I was at or what I was doing. If you don't persist in your meetings, in your, whenever you have to talk to these people, because they're not going to come looking for you. There's way too many homeless people that they have to take care of. Some people do want to get off the street right away. Some people do need to get off the street right away. And other ones, they just like, That is important.
1: I have a question for Jackie. What do you think, sort of in addition to all these things that Fernando's pointing out, that this story tells us about the state's plans to solve homelessness, even with all of this new money that's been allocated to address the issue? Like, what are some of the biggest takeaways that you had reporting on Fernando's story specifically that have pretty big implications for the system?
3: So, I mean, I think what we're really talking about is the state's plan to solve chronic homelessness. And that's what these permanent supportive housing units are really supposed to be about, is working with people who have been living outside for more than a year. Biggest takeaway for me, and even though I didn't really focus on this in the article, was actually what you wrote about, Manuela, was like this issue of The parts of permanent supportive housing are about people-to-people connections. It's about someone working with Fernando and having a really great trusting relationship, like the one that he had with this guy George that we're talking about, who he no longer is connected to because not only was he taken off of George's caseload, but George also then left the job. It really is all about this relationship, right? Like He has a housing case manager. He has a veterans case manager. But doesn't really connect with the housing case manager. The veterans case manager has been on leave for most of the year. And there's been like this kind of rotation of other veterans case managers that have been coming in who haven't really been around for very long. They're filling in from other buildings. You're not really connecting with them, right? And so there's kind of this lack of the kind of relationship that Fernando needs for someone to like actually really be working with him and taking any concerns that he has seriously helping him out with whatever process he's trying to go through right now. Like, you want to apply for a job, let's do a practice interview, that kind of thing. I don't think that that was really available to you, Fernando. Or if it was, you told me, you know, I haven't turned those switches on. I mean, I don't really get the sense that these people are here for me.
0: In the experience that I see here, for instance, in this building, while the counselors and caseworkers are here, I think they're more here for immediate Problems like with the unit primarily. At the end of the day, even though the location is at a path complex right next to it, it has three towers where there's apartment dwellings around it. And path is like the governing corporation inside. But the apartment as a whole is a separate entity altogether. While we have the ability to use them, we are just a normal apartment building with leasing, where everything is normal. Everything is just the same as it is. In any other apartment complex that doesn't have paths next door to it, so while they're here, there's really no obligation to use them in any kind of way, unless you need services. And it's not their responsibility to come over here as well because we're paying rent here. There's no programs, there's no groups, stuff like that. And I guess they want to make it as normal as possible for a person to remove themselves from homelessness and come back indoors and have a regular apartment, just like any apartment building. In America, in case you need it, they're here, but this is your apartment. This is your keys. It's separate from being homeless.
2: So it sounds like what you're saying is you it's much easier to get some help. Say if you got your key stuck in your door or things like that, instead of doing practice interviews or things like job training, it's like the day to day stuff is what you're saying seems to be more easily or more immediately taken care of than some of the longer term stuff that could kind of help you more going forward.
0: They have a calendar that they put out here with little groups, little things that they do services as a whole, as a group, like let's say a little brief cooking class or gardening, or uh, there's a lot of bikes, trails to go on, places you can go. More as a community, as opposed to individual hand-on-hand training. If you need assistance, they will help you, but direct help to get a job, like a job agency, they're not. They may have experience in that, and I haven't Concentrate on using those because for the most part, I know where to look and how to get it. It's just a matter of Fernando getting his lazy behind up and going to do it because I will procrastinate. I will avoid, I will do anything not to do something if I don't want to do it. Job agencies though, job referrals, education like that, schools, I know where to look. If you didn't know where to go, I'm sure they would be able to send you and guide you to these places. But to say that they have actual any education processes here, not that I have seen, no.
1: If you could tell California lawmakers who are trying to solve homelessness anything, what would you tell them? What could they learn from your experience?
0: Gavin Newsom is not bad. <laughs> I have to plug that in. I'm sorry. But it's like my homelessness ended thanks to Roomkey. You provide services that help and not just tell you what or how to do it, it helps. There's a lot of apartment complexes all over the city in development. There's a lot of apartment complexes that are empty. And there's a lot of people out there on the street that are complaining about the same thing, that the rent is dry. Now, I don't know who's responsible for that at the end of the day, but I mean, it can't just be about whoever the governing body is that it's their responsibility only. Because who is getting paid for that rent? People that construct the building or whoever the management is, they're the ones that are getting the money. So why is the rent so high? Lawmakers set the table for rent. I mean, I don't know. Is that how it works? Because a lot of people complain out here about it is impossible to survive in California because the rent is too high. You can't pay for the bills. So we have subsidized housing. I have the VASH. Other people have Section 8 as well. So that helps. But I still hear people paying hundreds of dollars for Section 8 housing. I mean, if you're on Section 8 and you're still paying several hundred dollars a month rent, like as in over five or six hundred dollars, and you're only living in a one bedroom apartment, how is that? I was working with one of the people outside Project 180, I think is what it was, and they had a flyer about how the increase in homelessness had risen by 30000 from one year to the next. And that the majority of the people that were being interviewed were saying that it was just too expensive to pay rent. And they were just as miserable on the street living in a tent as they were indoors with no money to do anything ever. You can't buy extra stuff. You can't go to a movie. You can't do anything for recreation. So it's like they can be just as miserable out on the street with not having to pay bills and have money or pay the bills and be broke at home. We could tell policymakers what the problem is, exactly what the problem is, show them what the problem is. And it doesn't seem like anything has changed. Taxes keep going up, people continue to have unmanageable living conditions because they can't afford it. You can see that in some areas there is a reduction of homelessness activity. But all that means is that they move somewhere else in some cases. In other cases, there is considerable decrease. But what happens to all those people? In a few months from now, will they get housing like I got? Will they be given that courtesy as well?
2: One thing we're interested in these stories are written and they end and they publish. And then, you know, there's always, well, what's the follow up? So, what's next for you? What are your plans over the next six months, next year? Like, what's next for you?
0: I'm gonna start doing DoorDash for now, just to get back on a responsible track of working. I'm gonna start this, I'm gonna start that. And once again, the procrastination is there and I don't do it because. At the end of the day, as long as I can pay the rent, as long as I can stay inside here, I'm good. So it promotes to my personal laziness. But uh, my personal laziness is has come to the conclusion that you cannot survive what I'm making with uh, services that I get right now. I'm on general relief and food stamps. That's not enough to survive indoors. You can do it outside. You can't do it inside. Inside you have bills, little cleaning supplies. Hygiene, stuff like that. That's one thing that they do provide here, though. They give you a little bit of uh, help along the way. They gave me a bag of some cleaning supplies yesterday and stuff that I didn't know they gave. Because they do do put out dry food and vegetables once a month. A box to every door. They get massive supply here of stuff and everybody gets it. Or at least I know the tenants that are vets get it. That's help right there. But uh, I want a little bit more. While this is a nice place, I would like a bigger place someday. A little bit more that I could say that this is mine and I got it type place. This is mine. I got it, but it was given to me. I see things, I guess, from a big picture point of view. And you notice things and you appreciate them more when you've done it yourself. And uh, I've been given a lot of stuff for a while. And I haven't gone out and gotten mine. Where I should
1: well, Fernando, Jackie, it's been so great having both of you on. We're so lucky to be able to hear your story. Is there anything else that either of you would like to impart to our vast and influential audience?
3: Read the story, read the story, and I have learned so much from talking to Fernando, consistently, texting, calling over the last few years. I have learned a lot more than I really ever thought I would and There's, I think, a lot to learn from people like Fernando, so hope people read the story. Thank you, Fernando, as always.
0: If people read these articles from a community aspect, if everybody got involved in it and not just kept them at arm's length, you know, we're actually people. We were active members of society once. There's a problem. What is the problem? Read on the problem and instead of Making the problem worse help with the problem. Because in a lot of sense, government and the public make the problem worse. The way they they, they treat the homeless in some cases. Inclusion, probably. We have issues. Some of us need help. Some of us don't know we need help. Find out who they are and help them as well. Because you can see people in certain areas that there's no way a social worker knows that they're there because they're out of the way. They're hidden. There's not all the services breach everybody. If everybody was like people's concern, I think that a lot more people would get housed. I mean, it has to be quicker. With all the construction that's going on out there, how is it that nobody's housed? That's big, right there. It's like plenty of signs there out there that there's room, and yet there's people still on the street. Not just pass the law and push it off. But involvement, everybody needs to be involved, follow through. And they need to follow through from the top. There's somewhere along the line that's it's, it's not all making it down. And that's in the bureaucratic side of things. So where is the problem? It's not in the homeless. That's for sure. It can't be the homeless problem. The homeless are a result of the problem.
2: All right. Well, Jackie and Fernando, thank you so much again for taking your time. We really appreciate you being with us.
0: Thank you, Liam. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much for listening to Gimme Shelter. If you like us, and we really hope you do, please rate and review. You like us. Yes, please do. On Apple Podcasts or your other favorite podcast service. As we say all the time, this is really important so that new people can discover us and learn to like us too. Our editor is Victor Figueroa. Victor, thank you so much as always. My name is Liam and I work for the LA Times and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam.
1: And I'm Manuela Tobias from CalMatters and my Twitter handle is Manuela Tobias M. Thank you all so much for listening.